2: This is Maya Wiley running for mayor of New York City, huddling and flowing with & flow.
4: All right, welcome to this post-Thanksgiving, post-trip to fan. Long weekend edition of the Huddle and Flow podcast. I'm Steve White here with my guy Jim Trotter. Jim, Jim, have you have you woken up from uh, from the trip to fan from all the turkey?
2: No, I don't think so, Steve. I, I tell you that was one of that was one of the tougher rides on Peloton today. So um, hopefully we'll be back in the in the groove t- uh, tomorrow. But yeah, man, I'm still I'm still feeling. It. And the great thing about it, still got a few more leftovers. So but the but the sweet potato pies are gone. So unfortunately, unfortunately. <laughs>
4: See, and Jim, you, I, and our producer Thomas Warren, know it is sweet potato pie oh. and not pumpkin. Don't bring it. Don't even. Don't don't even bring it to us. Okay, nah, we're not we're not it bringing it to Kimberly Thinning. Martin. Even-
2: yeah, we oh. ain't bringing Kimberly Martin on to have that discussion, right? I love you, Kimberly. I'm just joking.
4: She's probably having like shaved carrots with raisins in there. <laughs> so here's your salad, fellas. Anyway, Jim, this is this is a real. Um, Special edition, because we're dealing with some crazy stuff in the NFL in Week 11. And probably the most awkward situation was the Denver Broncos having to play this game with no quarterbacks. And our special guest is Demario Davis, the Saints linebacker, who had to play against Kendall Hinton, the practice squad wide receiver who had lined line up, line up a quarterback for the Denver Broncos. And, Jim, you and I both know Demario for all the wonderful work he does the Players Coalition um, he's been a leader there for a long time. We also know him as a great football player, probably one of the three best inside linebackers in the NFL. Hope I don't offend anybody, but Bobby Wagner and Fred Warner, I would throw in that group um, along with Demario. But Jim, this this interview we're about to do with him—I mean, we're you know hopefully we're going to cover a lot of ground. We know he's a pretty deep guy, um, but just knowing him, what are some of the things that? You know we, we think we're really going to get out of this, and that our, our folks out there, you people, are, are really going to dig
2: for me. It's, it's with DeMario, it's his story to me is so inspirational, both in terms of how he got to the NFL and what he's done since he's been here. I mean, you have to remember this. This was a guy who coming out of high school was a two star recruit. Um, he's from Mississippi, didn't get any offers from the SEC, goes to Arkansas State, ends up being jailed his freshman year for stealing. Out of walmart and has you know an awakening um after he gets back to campus uh where all of a sudden he finds his faith and it becomes that wind beneath his wings the rest you know as he goes forward in life and to be a third round pick of the jets to kind of bounce around among um he went to the jets to the to the browns back to the jets you know, and to seemingly be on his way out of the league, to now, as you say, being one of the top three inside linebackers in football, it's just an inspirational story. But the thing that stands out to me more than anything, Steve, is just his selflessness and his willingness to help others. And his work through the Players Coalition, which we'll get into with him, um, it's just been tremendous. So I, I think, matter of fact, I know our listeners, you all will enjoy this because. You know, these are the people who should be highlighted in the NFL. We, we spend so much time focused on a few knuckleheads who do things that, that they shouldn't. But it's people like Demario Davis who are special individuals and special players that deserve our attention.
4: 100%. Well, on that note, here is Saints linebacker Demario Davis. All right, Jim, now we're joined by our special guest, Demario Davis of the New Orleans Saints, one of the most distinguished gentlemen, Jim. I think you and I can admit that we both talked to around the league for everything he does on the field and off the field. And Demario, thanks so much for joining us, man.
3: Man, thank you, man, for having me on, man. It's a blessing to be here.
2: You know, I'm I'm trying to figure out how Demario fits all this stuff into a day, man, between football, (laughs) family, social justice, educating themselves man how do you do it what's your secret i
3: don't know man it's a lot of grace from the man above i think um my wife and my mom are pretty good about like you know using schedules and so they've helped me learn to plan out my day and plan out my time and so i try to i try to forward think you know what the week's gonna be like what the month's gonna be like and what i need to get in and it kind of helps me
4: Come on, man. You mean they don't pull things off their schedule so they can get more time with you? I would think they'd be like, "Uh, you're not doing this and you're not doing that because we need some we need some time." <laughs> they,
3: they they do, man. It was interesting. I went on a uh, I went on a date with my wife the other night, and then I got back, and uh, my daughter was like, she, "It was time for her to go to bed." She was like, daddy, I didn't get no time with you." and <laughs> My my wife was like, you know, it's time to go to bed, sweetheart. She was like, well, you had time with daddy, I did not. So, you know, it, it happens, man. It happens.
4: Well, we're gonna we're gonna talk about your kids uh, in a little bit, Demario, because you got some, you know your family, you're a great family man, and some things going on. But let's kind of get to the game. You guys are coming off this the big victory over the Broncos, but this was one of the craziest scenarios. We can imagine. I mean, you faced a quarterback who is a practice squad, Kendall Hinton, a practice squad wide receiver who has never taken an NFL snap. First off, just your thoughts about him being put into this situation. We know how hard it is to play quarterback in the NFL as it is. And here's a guy who is a wide receiver, a practice squad guy, having to start against you guys, one of the best defenses in the NFL.
3: He's a practice squad guy. Like he hasn't played in a real game. That's his first NFL game, and so I remember my first NFL game. You know, you were already going through a. Can I even play at this level? You asking that question. Can I even play at this level? I mean, I was playing special teams. And I mean, my heart was about to bust. And you know, until I made my first tackle on special teams, then like, okay, I can play at this game. Like he's been practicing that receiver, just hopes of playing his first NFL game, you always imagine what your first NFL game is going to be like. He's probably visualized himself making a catch, you know, making a touchdown for as a receiver. And he gets a call like, Hey, you got to go play quarterback. Like, and this is not pop one. This is not a high school game. This is an NFL game. You know where guys get paid millions of dollars to go be professionals to execute at a high level, which requires thousands and thousands of hours of training. So he's, He's just put in a very unfortunate situation. And so he's getting that. And then he finds out 24 hours before. uh, Then he's going against one of the top defenses in the league and going against a top team in the league. And so, I mean, there's just insurmountable odds. And so you just got to give him a lot of respect to be able to handle it. I mean, I looked over at him in the sideline. He was so poised. You know, he was coming in. He was commanding the huddle. He was running plays. I think he did as best as any of us could have asked or would have hoped to if you were put in that situation. Looking at it from our perspective, you know, we always have to get ready for the game. You know, it's just like, you know, we can't, you know, the, the, the different odds and everything that happened in the season, we just have to keep rolling with it. Once we sign up to play, we got to play. And, but that was the one time where I looked at him was like, man, I actually thought about sitting out the game because if it was us, knowing that we are one seed, and it could have implications on us losing a game if we didn't have a quarterback, that changes the odds drastically. And so, like, I wouldn't want the NFL to force us to play, say, hey, you either forfeit or play. I wouldn't want that to happen to us, knowing that it would it could dramatically change what could happen, you know, down the road. Uh, it was just unfortunate. I think it's just another one of those unfortunate things of being in this this very weird year of 2020. That we all just trying to process. Like I said, a lot of emotions and mentals that we have to to kind of process and deal with. And nobody has the right answer. So we just keep trying to find ways to move forward.
2: Did you talk to anyone about possibly sitting out or did you just think about it in your own head?
3: No, I was just something in my own head. You know, I didn't want that to be something that, you know, our coaches had to try to process. Is, Is he good or my teammates knowing that, you know, I'm such an influence to them? They can kind of have them in the way, you know, weighing that. So I just kind of was something I just processed in my hotel room uh, internally.
2: You know, DeMario, when you look at this season um, defensively, you guys are flowing right now. And I'm just wondering, does this year feel different from, say, the last couple um, def- from a defensive standpoint, not just a team standpoint, but a defensive standpoint?
3: Yeah. Um, I always process every year uh, a little bit different because they all are, are different. So I wouldn't say it's kind of like a, a pattern or a routine. I think when you look at playing defense in today's game, it is very hard. First of all, it's, it's not, you know, there's no secret. The penalties are designed to help the offense move the ball down the field. Not even to, to mention all the elaborate schemes that offenses are doing now. It takes a while as a defense to get used to what concepts are coming out and getting used to playing those concepts. Every year is something different. You know, uh, I feel like two years ago, it was was all what the Rams were doing with the turbo motions and and, and the misdirections. And now this year you see it's a lot of uh, those deep speedo post routes where you have, you running one safety off and then you open up the other side, you see those big shots. And so it's like every year, it takes a while to get used to, hey, these are the concepts we're going to see every week, and then this is how you effectively stop those concepts. And I think now we are in a situation to where we've seen pretty much where the league is offensive from an offensive standpoint, and we know what we have to do to kind of execute against those offenses.
2: How much does it help that you guys have been together now for a few years, many of the key players on that defense, to where you can adjust quickly? And, and rely on recall with some things.
3: Yeah, that, 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 that pays a big um, dividend, you know, uh, to have guys that, that you know, um, that you understand, and that you can vibe with, um, because you can speak to them in the moments. Like, it's, not, it's nothing for me to go up to Marshawn and, and Marcus Williams and say, hey man, we need you to play big today. Like, when you play big, the rest of the defense is gonna play big. It's nothing for me to go up to Cam and say, hey Cam, if you get one-on-ones, you have to win. And so, when you have guys that you've been playing with um, for a long time, I think it helps from that chemistry standpoint that you know what guys need to do to be successful. And it's so much, so much of it is unspoken. Like, you know, it's just what that that, that old quote, but understood, don't need to be explained. And so, we have so much of that that's going on. But then, when you bring in new guys like, you know, Malcolm Jenkins and Corn Alexander, the reason why those guys can come in and fit is because of the mindset and the culture that the coaches have created and the organization has created. And they know how to go and get guys who think on that same brain wavelength. And so we just instantly connect, you know, uh, like me and Malcolm challenge each other every week, like, hey man, go be special. Like that's just what we say to each other and we already know what that means. It's like for us as captains, we have to go lead in a special manner. Corn come in. It's funny, like everybody talk about me and Corn. They say it's like we best friends automatically. But he's from Alabama. I'm from Mississippi. We just think the same, and like we look at each other and be like, "Man, they should have, they should have blocked this trade when they saw it coming through. If they, if they had any wisdom, like y'all gonna get somebody hurt." And so they have done a good job of uh you know bringing in and having guys who who, who kind of think the same and that's what makes us you know kind of jail. and that's what people see Man, like man like y'all having fun man it's just like it's like a family reunion for us out there <laughs> we all just doing our dance outside of your
4: division where you mainly have drop you're facing drop back quarterbacks you know since we're kind of in this pocket it seems as like with the kyler murray's of the world and things like that we're seeing more basic collegiate read option not even rpo type stuff this is like high school collegiate type of read option. So how hard is it to adjust, since you're not seeing that week to week, to having to play assignment football as opposed to your regular standard, read your keys and do things like that when you face a quarterback like that?
3: Man, well, let's just be honest, man. That's why I'm saying the game is slanted for offenses. They cheating when they run the RBO. <laughs> you have a lineman downfield every time they run the RBO. Because the line doesn't know it's a pass play. Right. They have a run pass. They have a run play called, and the quarterback is looking at the receiver, and if they're in a certain coverage, and you see somebody move too far, throw the slant route or throw the out route. Well, the lineman don't know that he five yards down the field. <laughs> and it's like, I've been screaming that for years. Like, man, can y'all just call call lineman downfield, you know, one time? I think, I, think, I think the Saints got called for lineman downfield uh, and it wasn't even an RPO. Like we get all the countries <laughs> called against us. Here not we go. Thing.
4: Here we go. Everyone picking on the Saints.
3: Yeah, y'all we know go. that's true. We know it this is. is true. We it know is. This true. We know this
4: is, is true.
2: That's
4: not it. Here's how you know it's true. With all this COVID stuff going on, you guys got docked draft pick and find a half million dollars for a celebration.
3: Well, let's let let's talk about that, man. Let's talk about that double standard. Like, we're going to really talk about this. We got to talk about this. Let's do Le- it. The do league it. have no problem with us being out there on the field, running and tackling, sweat all over each other, talking trash, face Would you see Chris Jones and Tom Brady face-to-face, spit going all in each other, face masks. And league don't got no problem with that. But a team having fun in the locker room, you know, we don't got masks on, you want to issue fines. You know, like – so you don't have no problem with me being on the field, like my face mask got all kind of holes in it. I have to get in close contact with everybody that I tackle, and there's no problem with that. But then you want to say, like, put your mask on, you know, in the locker room, and, and 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 I'm and I'm cool with putting your mask on. Like, COVID is a real thing, and we need to make sure that we're taking serious and, and 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 taking care of you know all protocols. Like, but that's just a double standard, you know. It's very hypocritical. And especially when you're talking about a team, nobody comes in a locker room that hasn't been tested. That's the whole point of getting tested every single day so that I can be in a safe environment as possible. So there's nobody in my locker room that uh, hopefully that that has, you know, the virus. So there's the least likely uh, chance of it spreading because of all the protocols that the NFL has in place to keep us safe. So when we end up having a moment of enjoyment, you're going to pass down a fine. Man, the the, the whole game should be fine. If Mm. If that's what we really said, you can't do the optics on one side and then try to enforce on the other side.
2: I feel you. Do you almost feel bad, though? I mean, it's like, do you think if that video hadn't been posted, you guys would have been fine?
3: Well, you know, I went through the whole man of God situation. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, I see it. I had my headband on for three, four weeks. And the minute that I was, my first week of leading the huddle, and there's this big picture of me leading the huddle with the headband on, that's when the fine gets passed down. So, yeah, I, I definitely think, you know, the viral sensation of something, you know, plays a part. Um, but it ain't going to stop us from having fun. We're going to keep having fun. We just do it with our mask on.
2: Let me say this about your locker room celebrations. Now, obviously, we don't see all of them around the league. But y'all's? Is lit. I mean, <laughs> it, it it just it feels like a party in there. I mean, is, it feels anything, like New Orleans. Yeah, is anything planned out or is it just spontaneous? Is do you, are you the leader of it? How, how does it work?
3: <laughs> no, nah, man, that's Club La Saint. Sean has done a good job of like you know just I be, I guess being a catalyst for the culture. Like you mean bringing the, the the lights, bringing the smoke. He find the biggest you know system that he can find everywhere we go. And uh, you know we got we got uh, DJ Freddie Mac on the ones and twos, and then the guy just having fun. You know, it's just I mean, once we come out the field, you already got all the excitement from the win because it's very hard to win this league. So having mm-hmm. been able to take that moment to just enjoy it, um, I mean, I I was on the Browns. When we was one and fifteen. You know, I was I was on I was on the Jets for a lot of losing seasons. You know, and so it's hard to win in this league. And so you really have to appreciate it, and you know people can say or, or feel like you know we just—it's not like we're trying to be arrogant or anything. It's just hard to win. So at the end of a week, it's a lot of work that we put in. Wednesday we grinding, Thursday we grinding, Friday we grinding, Saturday it's all mental, and then Sunday you turn it loose. And so to be rewarded with a win. It's just it's just that time to be able to let go and uh, be free, and I think it it, it kind of humanizes us for the public. Like you know, people just see like we people, just like everybody else. We put a lot of work in, and we like to enjoy ourselves at the end of the day. Turn the music on, we like to dance, just like any other human being. Hey, Demar, quickly, when when you
4: when you're, to kind of get back to you know the real talk about the COVID situation. We see what's happening with the Ravens, right? You got up to twenty three players, um, who were involved. We saw what happened with the Titans. We see what's happening. What is the? What do you think is the best way? Because I know I think it was in training camp whatever. You guys had the option of, of staying in a hotel and having your own bubble, and a lot of players did that. Is, is that the best way now when we're seeing these spikes, or do you think anything needs to change and that maybe just some people in the building need to be a little bit more self-accountable?
3: A lot of people didn't think the NFL season would make it this far. And so, right. you know, by the grace of God, we done made it this far. Do we need to start thinking about – potentially shortening the season you know that's what i think our owners and our, and our union is looking at like do we need to shorten the season and try to get to the playoffs do we need to create a, some type of bubble for the playoff teams you know and how, how would
2: you feel about that how would you feel about that if they created a bubble for the postseason
3: i think it would be amazing i think if you if you found you know two two cities that could hold you know, one, side, one city hold the AFC teams, one city hold the NFC teams and bubble it off where everybody can have their practice area and, and then be able to go and play, I think it would be a great thing. I mean, at least you would be able to establish a winner and make it to the end of the season. I mean, we just had a game where a wide receiver was forced to play quarterback. Now, you you, you know, you're putting people that – like what if that happens in a, in a playoff game? You know, like you don't got no quarterback, but the game got to go on and the team gets split but-
2: out. Let me play devil's advocate for a minute on that. Yep, so yep, some yep. would say that the Broncos it's their fault because their quarterback room violated the protocols that reportedly those quarterback three quarterbacks were not wearing masks when they came in, you know, on their off day to do some study. So is that on them? Should it, should it be looked at that way or, or does responsibility lie someplace else?
3: Okay, let's, so let's think about this. Well, people have to, people are not really thinking about all the day-to-day interactions. Like like yesterday, we had to, we had to play a game where now on the sidelines, you have to have a mask on the entire time that you're on the sideline. So when I come to the sideline, first of all, I'm out of breath. I'm playing in my house stadium. What if I need to put the mask oxygen on my face? Now I got to remember, it's a. you're talking about creating new habits. I don't think to put my mask on when I come to the sideline. I, I, I haven't done that you know, for nine years when I played the game. So somebody had to keep coming down the sideline reminding us, put your mask up, put your mask up. I think you could probably say a, a percentage of that, like, yeah, they they, they 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 did have a part in that, like the responsibility to do what they were supposed to. It's just, it just, it's just an unfortunate situation for that team to be in, and I'm just thinking about it as if that shoe was on our foot, I wouldn't want it to have to go and play if we didn't have a quarterback, you know, and yeah, so yeah. regardless of how it happened.
4: So tell me this. Let's get back to the, the culture and your the roster depth and things like that because I want to talk about besides you guys seemingly just, just getting guys and have guys you can just step in and rotate in and play, but your quarterback, Taysom Hill, you see him. You, you've you practiced against him. You know how versatile he is. What about the way he's handled the whole situation of being a starter and, and the way he's, he's played? Because he even admitted against a Denver game. We had to change the offensive game plan. Kind of kind of based on, on how things went. But what about the way overall, how Taysom has handled everything? Uh
3: true pro. A true pro. I think the thing I know about Taysom is even though he has that uh, Swiss Army knife type of feel, like he can do anything and everything, uh, even up to returning kicks, he wants to be a quarterback in his league. He wants to play the quarterback position. And I think we were in a very good situation, you know, not just having uh, two quarterbacks um, on the roster. So somebody stepped in. We had three. And so we had a a few options of how we could handle them once Drew went down. And Taysom has stepped in and and handled it wonderfully. I think a lot of that composure and poise and knowing how to prepare has come from being around Drew all these years. I mean, since I've been here, I've always seen Taysom uh, at the hip of Drew. And so now that he's getting his moment, you see him preparing like like he's the guy, which he is, and and, and you, see, you see it paying off on, on, on Sundays.
2: You know, Demario, I want to get into your story personally, but before I do, I want to ask you about your defensive coordinator, Dennis Allen, and what he means to this unit, and even talk about him possibly getting a second chance as a head coach. What does he bring to you guys, and, and why do you feel or do you feel that he would be good as a head coach?
3: Well... Um, the thing about D.A., man, D.A. is one of the smartest um, guys and coaches I've ever, I've ever been around. Um, the way that he understands offenses and what they're trying to do and understands ways of aligning our defenses and making so quick side defense to be able to eliminate and take what they're trying to do away. Uh, it's just really, it's, it's really a masterful art to see me, especially as an inside backer, um, that has to kind of be like the brain of the whole operation, you know, executing and making sure that we all align and getting on the same page. So I kind of get to see it firsthand, um, you know, it's, 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 it's masterful. Um, I think he's going to get another chance as a head coach and I think he's going to do, uh, much better you know, his second time around as anybody would, you know, understanding, you know, what went right, what went wrong. We we even had conversations about it, what he, what he what he felt like he could have did better the first, you know, as a head coach. And he's like, you know, he cares so much about the game, but, you know, being a head coach is really about understanding that, you know, and being over the whole operations and things that are outside of football and managing those things and managing people. And he said, I could, you know, he's honest. Like I could have did a better job at that. Like I've seen him do that even with us. Like we were having, you know, our woes early in the season. He changed things up in practice, and was just like it would be, uh, it would be insanity to keep trying to do the same thing over and over and expect different results. He made a little suck sort of tweaking how we were practicing, and it, it it made all the difference. And so, uh, he's just a phenomenal coach. I think um, his Attention to detail and his demanding of excellence is what what, what allows him to thrive.
2: You know, I, I said we wanted to get into your journey personally because I think it's so inspirational. And um, I'll lead Steve into this. Um, you know, you've been so open about your life and what you've gone through into getting to this point. You go back to high school. You're a two star recruit. You say part of that is because you got kicked out of school, you know, as a sophomore for stealing someone's wallet then you wind up don't get sec offers wind up at arkansas state and right off the bat um you end up in jail for for stealing from walmart but a negative turns into a positive where then you find your your purpose in life or your faith um and and it's and you go on to become a third round pick you're not a guy who's projected as a starter as you were talking about playing special teams and things. And now let's start fast forward and you go through, you know, three, four teams and fast forward. And now you're an all pro sitting here right now. Um, when you think about your journey, what what word do you think best describes it? <laughs> and I know I, I gave the cliff notes version. I didn't go into detail, but but what what words describes your journey?
3: The one word I would just say is God. That has been. um I guess I should say I've been the passenger in, in his car. Like, that has been the journey. When I was in Cleveland, and I tell people I was ready to retire, when I was in Cleveland, my body was done. I'm like, I can't play no more. I I, I can't I can't play no more. Like, my mind is just not in. I don't even want to practice. You know, I remember going into my prayer closet and it's just like, you know, God, I'm done, but I know you're not done with me in the game. I could feel it. He wasn't – my journey in the NFL wasn't over, but I, I, I couldn't go any further. And I remember saying, like, God, I wave the white flag. I've been playing this game, you know, since I was, you know, 19 years old. And, you know, I, and, and I can't go no more. I can't play no more football. I, I just don't have it. I don't have the desire. My body hurting. And I remember hearing, like, this subtle voice saying, thank you for getting out of my way. Now I can work. And it was just mm-hmm. like he was like, remember that you waved the white flag. So November 2020. Uh, sixteen. I waved the white flag. Like, I'm done. I remember saying, like, man, if I win a Super Bowl, if I win defensive player of the year, if I'm an all-pro, which were just lofty thoughts at the time, real lofty thoughts. Like, I can't take credit for any of it. Now, I can tell you the little intricacies of wisdom that I learned along the way. I started to critique myself different. Like, if I got beat in the coverage, I needed to look at myself in detail exactly why I missed that play. I started spending off seasons with Ed Reed and he really taught me how to study offenses and what they were doing. I changed the way I dieted. I changed the way I trained. I don't train like a linebacker no more. I train like a DB. I changed a lot of things that I, do, that I did to prepare. But when you see that taking place on the field, that's not in my own strength. It's not. And if I try to take credit for it, like I can, man, got to take that stuff away from me so quick. So when I'm, yeah really giving that praise to God. That's what I'm trying to let people know. Like, hey, don't be praising me because I was this busted down vehicle in 2016 that could be up out of the league and just being a family man, not even playing the game if it had not been for God. And I think he really did it so that he can show people his power through me.
2: That's powerful, man. That's wonderful. Yeah, That's wonderful to here
4: man. I'm telling you, I'm kind of like, all right, all right. Okay, well, okay, but but to follow up, and we all know sometimes if we ask for patience or for mercy or for grace, that's when we get tested like no other, right? Mm-hmm. You just went through something with your baby girl. Um, she had, and I hope I pronounce this retinoblastoma, which yep, is a, yep. a rare cancer um, in her eye. Yep. Please explain to to everyone exactly what she went through and and. And how now it seems like she's on a really good, really good path.
3: Well, we noticed that our daughter had like a little glare in our, uh, A little glare in her eye. I was really small. Um, and you only could see it, you know, when, when the light hit in a certain way. And we we were telling the pediatrician. We started texting the pediatrician. Like, we just kind of noticed something in her eye. And she was like, oh, that's very common in kids. We sent her, like, pictures the best we could to kind of capture it. And she was like, make sure it's not growing we couldn't really tell that it was going but uh, if it was growing out but we just noticed that you could see the glare a lot more clear it didn't have to be like a certain reflection you could just see it and let's you know, we, let's
2: we, remind it, let's remind everybody she's 9 months old right she's yeah. a baby 9 months yeah. old 9 yeah. months yeah
3: 9 months 9 months and so um you know we are just kind of going through that 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 whole process of texting the pediatrician and I just told Tam I'm like I think we need to you know get this looked at this you know, if it, if it is nothing, we at least we will know for sure. And we take her in and, you know, with the COVID rules, my wife went in. I had to stay in the car. My wife called and I was like, how is everything? I'm just thinking it's like going to be a routine checkup. Everything all good. And she was like, I think it's uh it's pretty serious. She said, I think she may be blind in the eye. That was first. And I was like, oh, goodness. So I just kind of said like a little friend in the car. And then my wife called me again. She said, uh. They got to take her over to the other side. They they think it may be cancer, and so that was when you know, kind of like you know, you got that drop in your stomach, like oh my goodness, like cancer. This is this is this is you know super serious, and um, so we kind of go in, and the guy comes in, and like I mean, doctors have to do this, you know, ten to uh, hundred times a week, probably, you know, with different parents, and he just kind of came in nonchalantly and was just like, yeah, your daughter has cancer. I and probably the best thing we got to do is take the eye out. And I'm just like, wait, what? You know, like imagine going in for a routine checkup and then the doctor comes in and tell you like your baby is about to lose her eye. And me being a person of faith, like that really shook me because it's like, man, because you don't have faith, don't tell me that my you're going to have to take my daughter's eye out. She may not be able to see, but keep the eye in, God can restore her sight. That was my first thought. And, you know, he was like, the reason why we have to take the eye out because we know the cancer is in the eye we know she can't see in the eye and we just want to make sure that it doesn't spread like if we try to preserve the eye then it has a chance to get to the rest of her body and now he's like when it's eye cancer the survival rate is 99.9 it's like the highest survival rate so she's good but if it spreads past the eye then we you know we're at risk of it messing with a livelihood and so he was like i'm gonna let you guys just kind of think on it what you want to do you know here are the options he was like taking the eye out is what i'm recommending the most and my my my, my aunt my mom's older sister uh is a a cancer doctor in at emory in atlanta so we got her on the phone she talked to the doctor and she just said you know from what i know about cancer what he's telling you like is the best thing i mean this is literally you find out one day the next day she's getting her eye taken out so imagine having to process all those emotions um, but we prayed all the way through, like, God, we know even at the, the last hour, you can go in and say, hey, save, save her eye if that's, if that's what you want. And uh, she got she got her eye taken out. And we, when she came back home, we, we sat all the kids down, all our uh, other three children, and sat them down and, and kind of explained to them what had happened. I mean, and we were just we just been blessed through the whole process. Um, you know, it was the eye hadn't I mean, the cancer hadn't spread it past the eye. I mean, it, it's just been amazing and, and, and an amazing thing about it. Nobody wants to go through this, but we're grateful that if somebody had to go through it, that we get to go through it because we have a large platform that we can bring a lot of awareness to this very rare form of cancer um, and be able to help so many people who are, who are going through this or potentially will go through this, that they can recognize this, recognize it this sooner. We were blessed that we were in Nashville. So Nashville Eye Institute is one of the best places to be for this very rare form of cancer. Like the doctor is like the number two doctor who studies like this stuff. So it's just been a lot of uh, things that we've become more aware of and been able to help this very unfortunate uh, situation that families are going through. And, and it helps that we have this tremendous platform to be able to bring more awareness to it.
2: Well, Dee, we should, we should remind people as well that you guys are also, in addition to raising awareness, raising funds to help with this fight. And um, I believe the site is gib.vanderbilthealth.org, And that your family has agreed to match dollar for dollar up to $10,000, I believe it is. And I think yeah. you guys are pretty close to reaching your goal last time I checked. Um, so that's powerful, too. So if folks want to give... But this is one of the things I wanted people to know about you, too, um, is that you, in in many ways you are just so selfless, whether it is, for for instance, befriending a teenager who is paralyzed in a football game um, and your family purchasing a van, you know, to help this person and his family get around because they didn't have the means, raising funds now for cancer awareness, for um, pediatric cancer awareness, those sorts of things. And the other thing that segues into is for me, social activism and social justice, where you have been at the forefront, at least yep. from, from from during the time that I've been covering this, from the very beginning. And I mean, been out front fighting for these things. What made this such a cause for you that you felt you had to take action and be out in front on this and to be what I consider to be a leader in this fight?
3: Yeah, so much of it is for me, Um, that when you talk about social justice, especially social social injustice that has happened against black people, the reason why I have to be out front is not because I'm black. That's why I want, want people to know. Like, it's just doing the right thing. All these causes that you mentioned, it's about, hey, it's just about doing the right thing. Being, you know, loving your neighbor. If you see wrong being done, I mean, I was out at Flint, you know, helping with the water crisis. I have no attachments to Michigan. I was down on the border. I have no attachments to the Hispanic community. Um, you know, helping with Sam that you talk about, like, I didn't even know Sam, you know, before before then. It's just about doing the right thing. That's, that's just what I try to do, and then I always believe that there's a, a way to turn – uh, adversity into a positive now it helps that I am black it helps that I come from a, 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 I guess underserved community so I've seen these things and I went to a school where the kids from the hood and the kids from the sunbur- suburbs went to the same school so I could see those differences so I think that just helps me speak to these issues better it would it would be self-serving if I only fought for black issues because I was black like it, it, and that's why we, we're seeing this year like it, it gained so much momentum because so many people that weren't black were joining the fight. And I, think and why do, think point point. why do you think that
2: is? Why do you think that is?
3: If you looked at it, 2020 forced us to look in the mirror in a way that no other situations could have. Um, I was reading. Uh, a piece that talked about the fact that when Kobe Bryant died, that did something, it hit us emotionally different. Like, to just make us think about, like, how short life was. And then on top of that, like, COVID hit and put us all in, like, the the same place. And then, you know, the Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, like, happened at the same time. And it was just, like, it just forced us to be, like, in this place like in a huddle and having to look at something all together. And I think for a lot of people, it was the first time that the eyes or the scales were even removed from their eyes. But we have to think about it even being black. Like, there's that time is when you be like a young teenager, you growing up in America, everything's all hunky-dory and then you realize like, hold up, it means something different to be black here. You know, the first <laughs> time you read about slavery, it don't hit you that it's only one page
0: like
3: <laughs> but then when you go up you can look at all Like, hold up hold up. something they talked about slavery like it, it just came and went like oh and then the civil rights movement happened and then racism was gone you know but no no reparations no apologies no nothing ever happened you know the, <laughs> the reconstruction era was cut short we don't talk about all that type of stuff and so the scales had to be removed from my eyes and we just been woke a lot longer when a lot of people 40 50 years old they just not waking up for the first time and i think that's that's what happened and like people just have to realize that that's a process too right you know it's like on top of everything that happened in in 2020 i'm just gonna say it and being honest still 70 million people voted like they ain't seen none of that right you know What i mean <laughs> you know so like you still just have to realize it's a process just because people eyes have been open that's still a lot of cultural, you know, heritage that has been passed out to them that they're gonna have to find ways to try to navigate through. And uh, but at the end of the day, for me, it's about just doing the right thing. It's about doing the right thing.
2: D, what so what I'm has like, it cost? What has it cost you, if anything?
3: Well, I mean, I'm 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 still from Mississippi, man. Not everybody agree. Like people can be cool with me speaking about my faith, but when I get to talking about these black issues and I'm talking about uh criminal justice reform and i'm talking about you know doing away with the state flag and i'm talking about you know speaking about you know my differences with with the, with the with the former president like you realize everybody not in agreement with that or speaking about speaking about like police brutality um you know like i i got a a, a police chief that's one of my mentors and he like hey man everybody not happy with with the stuff that you're saying i don't have some controversial articles so i think just understanding like you know everybody not in gonna always be in, in in full uh agreement with with what you're saying or, or what you're doing or your stances so i think it's called some it's called some relationships and then i think i think that's a part of it too you know people always talk about me being underrated or people not talking about me as much as they should i think that plays a part and because of what i represent i don't represent mm. You know, I don't represent what they want us to kind of look like or what people like to promote. Like when we're doing things wrong, they, they promote that all day, every day. But when I'm talking about God and I'm talking about these controversial issues, you know, what? let's let's get on to something else. Let's get on to another topic. You know what I mean? And so I think that probably plays a part in it, too. So it probably has cost me a lot of um, you pr- probably notoriety as well.
2: D, I know Steve is going to jump in here on on this, but give me one sec here, Steve. When you joined the Saints, you said, I remember you said to me, part of the reason you joined, you wanted to go to a contender. And you felt that Drew Brees was the GOAT, not Brady, not Rodgers, whatever, that Drew Brees was the GOAT. So knowing that you have been in this fight for social justice um, for as long as I can remember, then to hear what he said this offseason... How did that impact you, and what was that conversation like when you spoke to him after his comments?
3: Me knowing Drew, it wasn't um, like that type of intention of, of, of it was just like the, the, the naiveness of the rest of America, of just growing up. And like we talk about those scales being removed from people's eyes, that was not a, 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 a thing of, of throwing shade against the black community or, or, or not, you know, uh, intentionally not understanding. Um, this is a real community, give back type of person. Anybody wanting to stand for injustice, he's going to be one of the guys that does it. Um, so I just knew when it when it came out, it just came from just not getting it like, like the rest of America. And that's why I was one of the first ones to try to go to this defense and just saying like, hey, he ain't no different than the rest of America. I mean, here we go. Like, I mean, look at the vote. So you people can say what they want, but like, look, seven million people, I'ma keep saying it, seven million people. You going to look at them people every day, they can tell you they get it, but if you did that, you ain't getting it. I'm sorry. I wasn't just gonna allow people to crucify this man for being any different than any other any other uh 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 American, a white American especially. They just the scales haven't been removed from your eyes, so you don't you don't you don't quite get it. And I think, man, nobody uh is more regretful of those words than he is. And he's shown it, you know, that man has been in the community, been on the front lines, you know, fighting uh, for the black community. Um, and and I think what he is able to do is reach a different audience that, you know, me, you know, Malcolm, uh, other brothers in this fight, they're just not going to be able to reach. But seeing Drew say, hold up, you know, I made a mistake. Like, you know, the issues that are going on in the black community are real. And not, and, and I know people will try to make it to be our lip service, but when you know the character of somebody, it's not lip service. It, it stung at the time, but um, the things he's done since then, yeah, that, that, that's a wash for me. Well,
4: Demar, as you wrap this up, as Jim mentioned, you know, you have been in this fight for a long time, you, Anquan Bold, and Malcolm. Um, but in light of what's happened this year, like you said, a lot of people had the scales awash from their eyes. Do you think that some of some of the action, especially by your brethren, your football brethren athletic brethren, is more being caught up in the moment, or do you think it is with this deep, heartfelt sincerity that that you have been about, and that so many others, the Kenny Stills of the world, have been about for years?
3: I think I think is uh, is 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 real, and it's only going to grow because I feel like what athletes realize. Um, not just in our sport, but you know, across all sports, is the power of, of collective voices, and to really how to not just use your platform to amplify messaging, but to really affect change. How that works all the way up to the policy level, and it's just an amazing thing to see. I think you're going to start to see. I mean, we were on calls with so many different colleges. Um, player Coalition college did a good job of doing that, setting up phone calls with different colleges. So I think what you're going to see. Is a, a new wave of athletes who come in with a with a social conscience that um, that just always realizes is 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 more than more than the game, and um, I think I think we're gonna be better for it. Um, I mean, sports are just so happen to be right now the dominant thing in society, and so when that's the dominant thing, you to whom much is given, much is required. You got millions and millions of people who are hanging on to every single thing that you say and you do, especially in the social media uh, era, that you gotta use that wisely. And um, you know, coming together and using those voices in a collective manner, I think what happened in 2020 uh, is gonna set a new precedence for us going forward because athletes are just gonna realize the power of their platform and, and working together. Look at the turnout, the, the voting turnout. You're not gonna tell me that LeBron James and more than a vote didn't play a big part in that, that that teams shutting down stadiums to go and vote. You're not going to tell me that that didn't play a part. I mean, the largest voter turnout in history. So I just think it's, 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 a, it's a new precedence. It's a new era, um, not just not just in athletes, but what it's awakening in people.
2: Yeah, one, one of the things I want to say that's been so powerful about what DeMario is doing in the Players Coalition is – how it has brought other sports leagues into this fight and together. So for instance, now they have what is called leaders across leagues where representatives from at least 10 different sports leagues come together to talk about these issues and how best to address them. And to me, that doesn't happen without DeMario and the players coalition and all the folks who are in there fighting that. So, um, so I, I, right here, I want to applaud you for that and the work that's, that you're doing and um I don't know if you realize the impact that it's having but we we do on the outside we see it
3: yeah I really want to talk about that leaders across leagues because that's 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 been a dream of mine uh coming true because when you talk about uh, athletes in MLB in the NBA in the in the MLS uh, in the National Women's Soccer League WNBA uh, when you talk about all these leagues come together, uh, lacrosse, talking about the future of the communities that these uh, players are coming from, the the power that that's gonna have going forward.
4: Well, tomorrow that that that's just so awesome. You know all the things you got going. As Jim said, you know you, I don't I don't know if you realize. You know, how much, you know, even as, you know, Jim and I are longtime journalists and we're objective, but how much what you and so many others, especially the Players Coalition and the other athletes you are talking about, how impactful that it is. And we just want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us, for sharing your thoughts on so many subjects, for allowing us into your personal life, because what they've heard from you today will make all of us want to be a little bit better. So we appreciate you.
3: Hey, I appreciate you guys, man. You be blessed.
2: Well, Steve, we promised the listener something special with Demario, and I think they got that. Um, Like you said, I think you said it earlier, an all-pro player and an all-pro human being. And um, he... (laughs) I tell you, man, he gave me goosebumps a couple of different times in there. And just... His faith is so strong and his belief is so strong um, that you just want success for people like that. So, you know, again, thank you to DeMario for coming on and for sharing his testimony with us.
4: I mean, it's it's perspective. I mean, now it's just one of those things when you hear this, it's like I did not have a bad day. man. I, I've never had a bad day. He's like Aeneas Williams, a Hall of Fame cornerback. And, you know, you, we, we listen to Aeneas. I mean, every time I just want to go and. To start all over like, I've got such a long way to go to be a good person. <laughs>
2: you know, uh, you, feel, like, you feel like you haven't even started, you know, Ooh, when you right. listen to them. It's not even you got a long way to go. It's like, I haven't even started. So, man, like I said, you goosebumps. Know, the, goosebumps. And, and seriously, people, when you hear
4: that, think about your hardships and compare. When he sits there and says, God grant us a miracle, And then takes a step back and says, you already have by bringing this child into our Mm. lives. Okay. And then you can, you can have, then you can view everything from that prison. Mm. You know, maybe, maybe that will cut out some of the self-pity. Maybe that will cut out it. We are all going through tough times with this COVID and, you You know, know, we can all take some perspective. It it just, it just, Jim, it moves you, man. It really does.
2: No, no question. And for, you know, to, to, to see his daughter come through the surgery, okay. And then to be walking out of that hospital and see those other cancer patients, pediatric cancer center, and seeing those other young kids with cancers whose parents are in there and they don't know that their child is going to be okay. And then to say, I need to do something to help them, you know, some who may have to travel hours just to get therapy. Um, I need to do something. We need to do something. And then to create a fund, hopefully everyone will go and contribute um, to their fund to help in pediat- pediatric cancer research. I know my wife and I, we went and contributed um, after reading his story and the testimony of he and his wife. So um, he just makes you want to do more, you know, and and not out of a sense of obligation, but as he says, because it's the right thing to do. And um, we need more of that.
4: Yeah, well, Jim, you talked about him being selfless. So I want to change gears uh, just a little bit. Um, over the weekend, of course, you're watching football. We were doing Facetime with our families and and everything else, but I happen to watch a special um, <laughs> on HBO, and it's a, a great book that was written by our, our fellow Howard brother, Tana E. C. Coates. The um, special is that, named it the book Between the World and Me, and as we know, the book is a letter to his son and about all of the trials and tribulations and challenges he's going to face growing up as a young black man um, in this country. And the way that this, and you've seen it, right? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Okay, like the way my soul is percolating right now after listening to DeMario, that is how I felt. Um, Maybe time something after watching this program, because all these great actors are narrating passages out of the book while they're acting them. And it is, I mean, if you want something to reach into your soul, and just to say shake this guy up a little bit it's that type of program regardless of your race or ethnicity or your background this is something that really really stirs consciousness you know and, and I, would, again between the world and me
2: yeah the thing that, that was so gripping to me is that we may have shared experiences as black men in this country but it doesn't mean we see them the same and he was able to present it in a way that made me think about it differently from, from ways that I have thought about it. And to me, that's beauty. That's greatness. Um, I know Michael Smith, who's a friend of the show, uh, referred to him as the our James Baldwin of this era and the way that he writes and the way that he sees things and is able to express them. I just found it to be so, so powerful. and, 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 in some ways, I found it to be almost embarrassing, like, Jim, how, how come you didn't think about it that way? How come you didn't see it that way, you know? But the greats have a way of doing that. And he is truly one of the greats of our of our generation. So if you haven't seen it, I would recommend that you watch it. Just really powerful, starting with, you know, opening with Joe Morton, who's one of the great actors, you know, of this era or any era. Um, just powerful.
4: And the scene with Felicia Rashad, um, yes. it's just it's, it's gutting. And, you know, what the, the part that really captured me, and I forgot about this part in the book, where he talked about his good friend was killed um, by a police officer in Maryland. And in this era of social justice, and this and that we automatically assume it's a white cop, right? All, all bad cops are white cops. And he's like, no, it's, it's a black cop. And how, the, how this guy didn't get charged and how it's not necessarily the race of the man in the uniform. It is the uniform that protects people who behave poorly in the line of duty. And, and, you know, there's a scene in there again, it comes from the book. That's just like, that's right. I mean, remind me of the KRS one song, black cop, black cop. And, and things like that. And we heard DeMario talk about how he's got friends who are in law enforcement. <laughs> like, yeah. Hey man, you know, we're not really cool with what you're saying. And, you know, just a scene, a scene that that scene in there where he talks about, you know, the black police officer doing that just reminds you um, that not everything is about black and white. But in that situation, it's also about blue.
2: Hmm. Yeah, it's, pow- yeah, man. it's powerful, right? man.
4: Yep. so on the way out, Jim, let's let everybody know we have another special episode coming up this week. Andrew Barry, I'm a- the general manager of the Browns.
2: I'm excited about it. You know, um, for those of you who don't know Andrew Barry, uh, he's first-year general manager with the Cleveland Browns, but he's been preparing for this moment much of his adult life. And just a very thoughtful, analytical guy um, who I always enjoy talking to. But what's going to make this episode even more special to me, Steve, is that you and I are going to do a deep dive on these coaching vacancies and these GM vacancies and try and present to you, the listeners, um, other names, diverse names, you know, for some of these positions, because what's really bothering me right now as we see these openings come up, It's, it's the same old thing happening again where names are being thrown out there of, of, of non-diverse candidates, I'm just ready to play by a different set of rules when it comes to this. So, you know, owners like to say maybe they didn't know or the pipeline is dry or whatever. You and I are going to give them names from that pipeline. And again, what we're going to try and do is save these owners some money and say, don't hire consulting firms. Just listen to us and we'll give you some names in addition to the others that you'll hear.
4: Yeah, we we've been on it, and, and we we let everyone know. Here comes a cycle again. With you know, Matt Patricia gets fired, David Caldwell gets fired, and we got the, we got the reporters throwing out there. The kind of the names that that always get thrown out there. Well, we're gonna you know we're gonna do what we do. Okay, we're gonna tell both sides of the story because you know there's good people on both sides, right?
2: You know what? See, I'm gonna jump the gun a little bit here and just give one example, which really kind of infuriated me this weekend. Was hearing someone talking about Kevin O'Connell. Um, who's with the Rams, the OC, and I know Kevin, and I like Kevin and all of that, but saying that Kevin O'Connell in a year or two is going to be a head coaching candidate, but then never mention Pep Hamilton who with the Chargers, who has done a tremendous job with um, Herbert there, who may just well be the offensive rookie of the year in terms of the way that he has played. So why is one more deserving than the other, particularly when Pep Hamilton has head coaching experience in the XFL, has been a coordinator in the NFL before Andrew Luck's best season came under Pep. Um, I'm I'm trying to figure it out what the logic is in this. See, you got me going already, Steve. But for our listeners, tune in Thursday when the next episode drops and you'll get more of this. All right, Jim, take us home. You know, again, thank you all for listening please subscribe, leave us a review, tell us what you'd like to hear so we can give you more of what you're funking for.
4: For Jim Trotter and our producer, Thomas Warren, I am Steve Weitz. This is the Huddle Flow Podcast, and we are out.
0: You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring,